Alright, so 1 Peter 5, if you have the church Bibles, that's page 1016. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clove yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I came up with a diagram this week uh, that that tries to capture this last chapter of Peter's letter and uh, really to sum up what the whole letter has been all about. It's a pity that I can't show it to you. Uh, I left it at home. Uh, But it's a pretty simple diagram and uh, you should be able to visualise it, I think, if if I just try to describe it to you. And maybe uh, if you have a pen, you can sketch your own version in the bulletin somewhere uh, as we go. It's just a simple line diagram shaped kind of like a cross section through those nesting babushka dolls, if you know those little wooden dolls, where you open up one of these little wooden egg-shaped dolls and there's another one inside and then then you open up that one as well and and there's another one inside uh, and so on. Uh, The diagram's kind of like that. It's like just... Picture those dolls, picture like an x-ray through them that shows you them all together stacked inside each other at once. As we open up 1 Peter chapter 5, there's a, there's a few concepts here in what he's saying that somehow nest inside each other uh, just like those three uh, little babushka dolls. And so, and so if you just picture a few concepts here like three of those dolls. The first concept uh, on the outside of the diagram that I drew, so to speak, is about the people of God. In the very last words of this letter, we are reminded that this has been written to Christians, verse 14. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And at the start of the chapter, we see that those Christians are also just naturally in community together. I mean, there are elders, chapter 5 and verse 1, and and those learning under elders in verse 5, and all of them showing humility towards one another. 
It's a clear picture, a beautiful picture of, of the Christian community into which God saves his people. Back at the start of the whole letter, if you recall where we were about nine weeks ago, we saw that Peter first wrote this letter to Christian communities in various other places to where he was. Now, at the end of the letter, in verse 13, he signs off, it seems, from his own church, and he signs off as if his church felt like they were in exile, just as he had also said, if you remember, in chapter 1 and verse 1, that the other churches were as if they were in exile too. And he says at the end here that his congregation were chosen by God, just as he had also said of the churches he was writing to back at the start of the letter, that they too were God's people by his choosing, by his election. The letter actually rounds out really beautifully uh, between Peter's church that he's visiting with at the end here and, and the churches he was writing to at the start. God saves his people into communities of faith in Christ who are all alike waiting for their true home in heaven. That's the first kind of nesting doll in this, in this diagram to consider. Uh, and it wraps around not just this final chapter here, like so, from verse 1 to 14, but around the whole letter, the clarification around who the people of God even are. They are the people whom God chooses and brings into community together as his people to wait for their eternal inheritance in Christ. And, and my diagram that I drew is pretty simple in form, but I gave it some pretty fancy labels on, on the different layers. That first one, uh, that, let's just call that kind of a bushka, the people of God, or, or, or Christians in community. That's what I called it, Christians in community. If we open up that first doll... There's a second one nested inside it. Because a second concept in this scripture that we've just read sits within that context of Christian community. It's what we might call the humility of circumstance. The humility of our circumstance. We could call it something like suffering, I guess, and, and you can label it uh, that way in your, your diagram if you like. I went with fancy names, and, and in this case, humility of circumstance. See it in the text with me from verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him. Yes, the people of God will still encounter things and situations that grieve them and distress them. Be sober-minded, verse 8. Be watchful. The party hasn't started yet. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's still danger around us. Resist him, verse 9, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So it's normal for Christians everywhere to experience suffering in this life, as, as we reflected on quite intensely last week. 
There's no getting around this reality of scripture, is there? You and I, as Christians, can anticipate humbling circumstances in this life. We look forward to our certain glory in heaven, as is our sure inheritance in Christ, as Peter has been saying all kinds of ways through this letter, but so too the necessary flip side of that in the here and now is is that all kinds of humbling circumstances are in store for the people of God. There's the second layer to the diagram, if you can draw it, or or if you can just picture it in your mind, the humility of circumstance. We want to be experiencing glory as Christians, don't we? But, But that isn't our reality just yet. If we open up that second concept, there's a third one sitting inside all of that. And I'm calling this one the humility of spirit. The humility of our spirit. And it runs through this passage and and through the whole letter, of course, but it crystallises here in chapter 5 pretty clearly for us in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So there's an outcome to us finding ourselves in those last two contexts of our humbling circumstances and and in our Christian community together. God will use those things to refine us, to, to create in us personally a humbler spirit. The opposite of a humble spirit is a prideful spirit. Not pride in the sense that we often use it of, you know, taking pleasure in something, but pride in the scriptural sense of of an arrogant self-glory. That has been part of our story since the Garden of Eden. The devil leaned over to the woman and and her husband who was with her, and, and what did he suggest? You don't need to submit to God's rule. You yourselves can be like God's. Cutting God out of the story, thinking we can do just fine on our own, that we've got this as it is, doing things our own way, this is the essence of pride. A state in which we defy God by choosing a path that has no need for God. In ways that are huge, down to ways that are very, very tiny and and hidden perhaps inside us. That defiant, independent streak in which we believe we can walk without God's input or help is still part of our story. Deep down, we have the remnants of a prideful spirit in us, a prideful spirit that likes to find sufficient contentment apart from God. Although the truth, of course, is that the prideful spirit doesn't ever find sufficient contentment precisely because it maps out a course apart from God. So for our own good in the long run, God needs to bring us out of that sinful pride. Whether it be the massive kind or the microscopic kind, whether it's in response to some specific pride in us or just the general work that God is doing in us, he must Humble our spirit. 
because ultimately there can be no pride in our relationship with God. Pride is the very thing that breaks the relationship. But he has saved us to be his people for all eternity. And so so every hint of our wrongful pride must be removed in the end. It's just that he's already working on that now. And we should therefore work on it with him. As Peter calls us to there in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. God wants to humble our spirit and we need to learn to go with him on that. That's the third dole. And if we can see the the nested structure to this scripture, that, that humbling of our spirit comes by way of the broader context around it, first of all, of, of our humbling circumstance, such that all those examples we were thinking of last week about why we might encounter Christian suffering All of them, so varied in their causes and reasons, serve nevertheless to bring us into a humbler posture. How far from our minds are such vital works of God in our life when we're in the midst of those humbling circumstances? How quickly we default instead to thinking that God has rather abandoned us that we should go through humbling stuff. But quite the opposite by the word of God here. Those difficult times are opportunities for us to humble our hearts too, knowing that one way or another it is God's mighty hand upon us for the good that he so graciously wants to work in us and for us in the end. Catch verse 6 carefully again and think about what it is saying and think about how it is teaching us to respond to life's humbling trials. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The mighty hand of God is upon us for what will be his wondrous reward to us in the end. And the humility of spirit that we need for that is like a little babushka doll sitting inside the vital context of the humbling circumstances God grants upon us. God has not abandoned us, brothers and sisters, when we are down and out in life. On the contrary, we should see that as us being under his mighty hand for our good. So too, if we jump out another level on that diagram, that the humbling of our spirit unfolds, not just in the, in the context of humbling circumstances, but, but in the context of Christian community. Because that just wraps around all of this. And it should be no great surprise if we think about it that, that a humble posture comes to us in the context of a Christian community because community and humility go together, don't they? One requires the other. So the work God is doing to bring us into a humbler posture also works itself out, therefore, in the proving grounds of Christian community, which requires the same kind of humility as as Peter has previously spoken to in this letter of of husband and wife, of, of servant and master kind of relationships. He now describes for the relationships within our local church. From verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God has a work to do in every one of us. He wants to keep surgically removing our pride and bringing us more and more into a humble posture. He uses our circumstances to do that, sure. So too he also uses our fellowship to do that. Both of those things lead us out of our fierce, independent, individualistic pride. So even though it often feels inconvenient, or frustrating, or boring, or difficult, or unnecessary. The relational dynamic of being in community is a vital part of God's work in us to reshape us in humility. There's a big challenge here for the, for the private faith model that's so popular today because Christians are called, in verse 5, to be subject to their elders and humble towards one another. There's no room for independent pride in in genuine Christian community. God will use fellowship to humble our spirit. Big challenges too, though, aren't there, for those with any kind of leadership roles in the church. They need to know that they're merely under-shepherds. They need to know that what true Christian shepherding requires is not that they be domineering over those who are in their care, but rather modelling humility. Humility, because that's what Peter's getting to in all of this, as he brings it all together explicitly there in verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Relationships in community are the proving grounds for us to be made more and more humble of spirit, the very thing God needs us and wants us to become. So if you've pictured the diagram of this scripture that came to me this week, if I've done any good job at at trying to describe it to you, the necessary humbling of our spirit to prepare us for heaven sits inside two other concepts there in this text. God humbles our spirit through humbling circumstances. God humbles our spirit through Christian community. And those two things fit inside, don't they? They fit together, not just in the diagram, in the text here itself. We must recognise that our humbling circumstances aren't somehow sitting outside our natural place in Christian community. I mean, Peter's writing this letter to a community or communities about their various Christian trials. The one just necessarily sits within the other. So why is it 
that when we go through humbling stuff, we so easily turn away from Christian community. As if, as if that context in which we belong shouldn't know anything about the other context of our humbling situation. Why do we feel we can only come into community when our circumstances are good, as we variously like to define good, when we are well enough or whatever else it might be? Why is it so hard for us to let our suffering sit within our natural home in Christian community? Why do we deprive our brothers and sisters of sharing in our suffering, of helping us in our suffering, of just plain shutting up and sitting with us in our suffering? Why do we withdraw and try to do it alone? And do we not know that when we are courageous enough to carry our humbling circumstances into our community, we then teach others to have the same courage to be more honestly vulnerable themselves? You see, what inevitably happens when everyone who's going through some kind of humbling trial pulls out of community is that, by the by, that community comes to reflect some kind of sham. Some kind of false reality where where everyone's doing just fine, thank you. Where people aren't going through trials. Where God isn't bringing anyone into a humility of spirit. We can't keep feeding this pretense that the Christian life is all good for those whom God loves and if not, then God mustn't love us. Because that is precisely the opposite of what this word of God actually says. He works hardship in us for our good. Because he does love us. Because we are now his people. We step into Christian community just as we are. Knowing that God wants us all to be marked with humility. So I would love to call you uh, to be courageous if and when you can and come to church, especially when you are in hardship, for our good as Jesus' church, not just for your sake, for our sake. God is humbling our spirit through the humbling circumstances he allows to come upon us and through the Christian community that he brings us into, and through our courage to carry the one into the other. By the way, who told us? Who told us that we should only experience uplifting circumstances in life? Who told us that we don't need to submit or commit to the idea of church fellowship together? Who tells us, then, that our lives somehow have to be right before we do come? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour.
The devil opposes God's precious work in us in these things. He wants to devour us, verse 8. As he has always done since the beginning, the devil wants us to reject what God desires for us and is doing in us and, and have us push back against God in our pride. So in the context of humbling circumstances, the devil will have us doubt God and turn to other things for hope. He'll have us question God and end up resenting God for not rescuing us out of those things. Ultimately, he'll have us go it alone because we just can't make sense of the suffering. And in the face of Christian fellowship, the devil would rather that we did lord it over those who are under our care or just care for them begrudgingly, make them feel out of place if there's something wrong with them. He'd tell us we oughtn't need to submit to having anyone watch over us. He'd have us put our own self first so that we never truly commit to anyone else. We are under the mighty hand of God as he refines us in in various ways to become more humble in spirit. We want to lift ourselves out of that humbling circumstance when it comes. We want to take leave of our responsibilities and relationships in church. Deep down, that's because of our sinful pride, which the devil knows only too well how to feed. It's going to be a slow journey to try and turn all this stuff around. Christianity itself has fallen into wrongful theology around these kinds of things like humility and suffering and community. But we must listen to the word of God here and let him recalibrate us. And key to that, I think, is knowing what he is doing through such things and focusing on what he's doing through such things. Which brings me to three more of these nesting dolls to take from this text and try to squeeze into that diagram in your mind. Christians in community, humility of circumstance, humility of our spirit, there's a fourth tiny little doll inside there, tucked away inside all those others. If you are drawing, I hope you didn't draw too small uh, because there's another one to fit in in the middle. Peter also tells us here what's at the heart of all this why God brings us into community, why he allows hardship upon us, why he is humbling our spirit. It's sitting there inside a couple of these verses, like verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. This is the precious treasure deep down inside all of this mystery and Peter won't let us forget it. God is doing all of these things for our ultimate reward. And it might only just fit in in your diagram if you're drawing it, but that's okay, because think of it like a little crystal that carries eternity inside of it. Just as Peter framed this whole letter for us back at the start in terms of the glory of our reward set aside for us in heaven. 
which can never fade or be taken away. Through all these things, God is right now forging that eternity crystal inside us. So maybe from that beautiful end point for us, we can think our way back through this nested mystery in Scripture from the centre. Our destiny is that God will lift us into his glorious presence forever in the great reward of heaven. For now, though, we must be made fit for heaven. And that requires a humbling of our spirit before God. That humbling of spirit comes by God's granting to us humbling circumstances that draw us deeper into humble dependence on him. And that's just part of what necessarily happens in and among the people of God. And we ought not try to keep hiding it. If we zoom out a little bit, theologically speaking, just step back a bit from this, there's a fifth layer of context around all of this stuff. The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. God has chosen his people. God allows them to go through humbling circumstances so that they would let their spirits be humbled too into a fit state for heaven that he has graciously called them for. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Our pride surely cannot survive in God's presence. And so all of this comes to us because we are under the mighty hand of God for our good. Why do we so love the idea of having God's hand behind us, with us, around us, under us, for us, and even on us, even upon us in in the positive kind of sense of those words, but not over us? such that he should bring us into hardship or trial or have us submit to others in community. Well, not to put too fine a point on it, but we don't like that idea of being under God's mighty hand because of our pride. We don't want to be humbled. We want to be lifted up high and we want that now. Thing is, though, what God brings about for us is truly for us. And if we find ourselves enduring some trial or having to make sacrifices for others, then we shouldn't resent the idea of being under his mighty hand, but rather we should be rejoicing in it. He is doing this because he loves us. Verse 7, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so at the proper time, he himself will exalt us. It's all in his hand. And if you haven't drawn that diagram too big in your mind or on the paper, there's a sixth layer that wraps around even that one. All this is uh, from God. He's doing this sovereignly for us. And it all sits within this ultimate context. The glory of God. 
The glory of God, the reason we must let God bring us into a humble spirit to be fit for his presence in heaven is because we must be humble if God is to be glorified. He must be the one, verse 10, who is sovereign over our calling, sovereign over our circumstances, sovereign over our transformation, sovereign over our reward. He will be the one who restores and confirms and strengthens and establishes us. Ours is just the humble joy to come under the hand of such a loving Saviour God. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In our pride, we won't let God have dominion. In our pride, we don't need his power. But if we were to remain in, in that prideful state, we'd only meet with God's opposition, as verse 5 so bluntly puts it. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There is no grace if we stand in pride. And so humility is just a fundamental part of Christianity. This is God's work in us and for us to lead us into a fitting posture. All of which, across the diagram, then then reflects a, a necessary inversion, if you think across the whole thing. The us bit diminishes in size as you move into the centre. The God bit grows and grows as you stand back to take on the whole picture, which is kind of fitting if you think about it, because we must become smaller. We must see God as greater and greater if we are to be fit for heaven, to live under a sovereign and gracious and glorious God. I dare say Peter might have made us rethink our theology a little bit in this letter as we've tuned in at these last nine weeks, certainly in as much as we understand what it means to be the people of God. The diagram that I'm clumsily trying to describe uh, to try to get a handle on what these wondrous scriptures are powerfully saying is, is actually a long way from the prevailing Christian thought in our world today and quite a way too sometimes from what's even in our own hearts that our glorious reward should should be set aside for later? That in the meantime, that the true people of God are those being made more and more humble? Like even, even more humble than I've already been made? Through hardship? Submission to others? Under the mighty hand of God, me, what? That his glory would be expressed in our lowliness? It's not how we usually like to think, is it? But this is the true grace of God, verse 12. Stand firm in it. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Greet one another with a kiss of love and let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this hard but, but beautiful scripture that this letter has been. Thank you that you have revealed to us the true grace that you have called us into, that we can look forward with certainty to glory for all eternity in your very holy presence by the blood of Jesus Christ who was crucified for that very purpose to bring us to you 
but so too that in the meantime, your loving purpose in our life is, is that we should submit to humbling circumstances in humbling community so that we might become fittingly humble in our own spirit to come unto you fully and sit before you forever. Father, this is as radical a theology as it is difficult a practice for us to try to take hold of. But you have called us as your people. So please bring us fully into your true grace. Under your mighty hand and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.